If everyone would like to open their Bibles to uh, Colossians 4, 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. As we come to the last chapter in Colossians, we touched on verse 1 last week and continuing the first part of Colossians, we come to an aspect of our lives in which perhaps we struggle the most, and that's with our mouths. Paul has shared with us how our lives are transformed from the old to the new nature, and how God's, through God's great agape love, we can treat each other with sanctified, in a sanctified manner. How we can be transformed, husbands and wives and, and children and parents and employers and employees. But as that sanctified life moves out beyond the personal and beyond then even our personal relationships, and begins to touch the world, which is God's ultimate goal and purpose, right? Go and make disciples. There's something else that needs to be sanctified in us, and that's our speech. One of the easiest indicators of a sanctified life is how a person talks. What they say, how they say it. A Christian ought not only to act differently, but they ought to talk differently as well. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What Jesus meant by that is really very simple. It's exactly what he said. What we are on the inside comes out of our mouths. And that really is a key to the passage that we're looking at here in Colossians this morning. Paul's premise to this whole discussion, of course, about our changed life is in verse 1 of chapter 3, since you were raised with Christ. Because that happened, done deal, past tense, because that happened, everything needs to change. Our lives, everything about our lives needs to change because of what took place. We have become a new person, controlled now by the Holy Spirit. In verse 5 to 9 of chapter 3, he talks about the new person putting off the patterns of the old nature. And then verses 9 to 14 talks about putting on the patterns of the new nature. And then in verse 15, we are to let the peace of Christ rule. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in us. Verse 17, the new person with a new nature is guided by the name of the Lord. Everything we do should be to honor and glorify God. And up to this, it's all personal. It's me, myself, with the Holy Spirit. What takes place in my personal life. Then from verses 18 to the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, which we looked at last week, actually the last couple of weeks, he talks about how that new transformed life should affect all of our personal relationships. And now as we come to chapter 4, starting with verse 2, the third area that this new nature should affect are the relationships to the people 
around us outside the family. In fact, the primary object here is to unbelieving people. Notice verse 5 that, uh, that Luke read to us. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Kind of corresponds, doesn't it, with the, having the gospel effect on our personal Jerusalem? Our personal lives is kind of our Jerusalem, and then our Judea and our Samaria is, is our family relationships and the relationships that are immediately around us. And then the thirdly, to the uttermost parts of the world. And folks, the world is watching us. The world is listening to us. How do we act? What do we say? Is it different? In verse 6, he says, let your speech always, always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each other. Now, before we start digging into these verses uh, in this passage here, I think it's important for us to have a good understanding of, of what I'm calling the theology of the tongue. I haven't seen that in a course in Bible school or seminary, but probably ought to be. A biblical study of the tongue. What does the Bible say about the tongue, about the mouth, about speech? I've seen people's speech transform dramatically when their hearts transformed. We saw it in our own son, who in high school days had a foul mouth, and it came out from a rebellious lifestyle. But when God began to get a hold of him and changed his heart, his foul language became disgusting to him. And that's how it should be, because out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. And if we have a renewed heart, then we are going to have a renewed mouth. It's interesting how the letter to the Ephesians parallels Colossians. got the same author, right? Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, does it in a number of ways, and Paul in Ephesians deals with this aspect as well. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, he says that we are to put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. That's what we've been talking about, that new nature that we've been studying about here in Colossians. Then in the very next verse, it's interesting, he, he jumps directly to the mouth. Put away lying, he says. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Verse 26, don't be angry. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Christianity, a relationship with Christ, should have a profound effect on our mouth. The Bible has a lot to say about the tongue, and for good reason. It probably says more about the tongue than any other physical aspect of our being. In my studies, I came across a man by the name of Bias of Priene. He apparently was, has been considered one of the seven sages of Greece, the seven wise men of Greece. And the story goes, and it's kind of a Solomon-type story, that on one occasion a person sent this man Bias, an animal, as a gift, with the instruction that he was to sacrifice the animal. But before he had sacrificed the animal, uh, the owner had said, uh, please cut out the best part of the animal and the worst part of the animal and send it back to me. 
So Bias cut out and sent back the tongue. And as a result of that, he has been considered one of the wisest men of Greece. You see, the tongue is the best, and it is the worst all at the same time. James talks about it strongly in chapter 3. Just listen. When we put bits in the mouths of horses, we, we make them obey us, and we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives and, or a grape tree of grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. No human being can tame the tongue, but the Holy Spirit can. James is simply pointing out the power of the tongue, the damage the tongue does, and the inconsistency of the tongue. The same tongue that blesses a moment later curses. The mouth is probably the truest indicator of the spiritual condition of a person. One commentator described it this way, the unredeemed mouth is the gate through which depravity exists. Isaiah, for example, when he was defining sinfulness in relation to his people, he said in Isaiah 6.5, Woe to me, for I am undone, for I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He was simply saying that depravity is proven by conversation, by what comes out of the mouth. He understood who he was and the people were. In Matthew 12, 37, Jesus says, For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the mouth, both negative and positive. Let's start with the biblical description of the unredeemed mouth. And we're going to go through a big list here, but uh, hang in with me, because this, this just emphasizes how strongly God feels about this. First of all, it speaks evil. Proverbs 15, the mouth of the wicked pours out evil. Secondly, seduction and lust come from the mouth. Proverbs 5, for the lips of the adulterous woman drips honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Uh, the tongue, the, there will be deceit. Jeremiah 9, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With their mouths, they all speak cordially to their neighbors, but in their hearts, they set traps for them. The unredeemed mouth speaks curses and oppression in Psalm chapter 10. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. It speaks lies in Proverbs 12. Lying lips are abomination to the Lord. It twists and perverts things in Proverbs 6. A troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth. The unredeemed mouth destroys, Proverbs 11, through the blessing of the upright a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked 
it is destroyed by the mouths of people, people's lives, people, uh, the uh, cities, whole countries have been and are right now being destroyed by the mouths of the wicked spewing out lies and accusations with impunity. Vanity is something else that's spoken about in 2 Peter 2, for, for they mouth empty and boastful words. It also speaks flattery in Proverbs 26, a flattering mouth works ruin. How often have you heard mouths speak foolishness? Proverbs 15 tells us that the mouth of the fool gushes folly. Ecclesiastes 10, fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness. Think about the woke culture of our day today. A number of years ago, stuff that is being spewed today would have been considered folly, just silly. How can you be saying that? Today, it's become wicked madness. The writer says they're, they're fools and are consumed by their own lips. The lies and folly have been repeated so many times and so loudly that they are consumed by it and actually believe the madness. The unredeemed mouth talks too much. <laughs> Ever heard that? The very next verse in Ecclesiastes 10.14 says, Fools multiply words. That's part of the strategy to get people to go along with foolishness. Matthew 12 tells us that the unredeemed mouth speaks idly. Everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. It also teaches false doctrine and false truth. Titus 1, rebellious people teach things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Psalm 37 says that an unredeemed mouth speaks evil plots. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. Proverbs 14 says an unredeemed mouth speaks boastfully. A fool's mouth lashes out with pride. Psalm 109 says that the same mouth speaks hatred. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. Jesus in Matthew 5 speaks of a swearing mouth. Do not swear. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Ephesians chapter 4, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. It's interesting, the word unwholesome in Greek refers to this to something that is corrupt, rotten, putrefied, filthy. That's a, that's a strong, strong term. Don't let any of that kind of stuff come out of your mouth. And Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the unredeemed are gossips and slanderers. And that's only a beginning. There's a lot more. But what it basically comes down to is that when you have a person not touched by God, you're going to have a, a vocabulary that matches. Paul describes them in Romans 3, verse 13, as he quotes the Psalms, their throats are an open grave, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Do you notice the progression there in, in, that, in that verse? It starts with the throat. It passes uh, over the tongues, exits the lips, opens the mouth. Remember what Jesus said, from the heart, the mouth speaks. You know what should be really concerning? If we don't have our mouths transformed, we are going to hear from Christ's mouth. We've been learning some about that in our morning studies in our spiritual growth classes. In Revelation 19, verse 15, speaking of the time of judgment, it says, coming out of His mouth, talking about Christ, coming out of His mouth is a sharp sword 
with which to strike down the nations. It's a picture of judgment. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 12, 37, For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. It depends on what you confess and what you believe in your heart. So the Bible says a lot about the unredeemed tongue, the tongue that's not touched by the Holy Spirit, the tongue that is not sanctified. None of these things should ever be true of a Christian. None of them. Maybe we need to get that old chopping block back out with the machete and the hand chopping and eye gouging and tongue cutting ceremony. But you know, we don't need to. We don't need to because God has provided a way to redeem all of those aspects in our lives, even to redeem the tongue. What should the redeemed mouth then be saying? What should it be doing? First of all, we are to confess our sin. Remember what David said back in Psalm 32 about when he didn't confess sin? When I kept silent... So often we, we keep silent, don't we? We want to hold it in. We don't want, we don't want to confess something. When, we, when I kept silence, uh, silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He was miserable. He had no peace. Then I acknowledged my sin. There's the answer. Then I acknowledged my sin. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So confessing sin is not just the initial aspect of receiving Christ, but all through our lives when, when we fall into sin, we need to be quick to confess that and receive that freeness and that forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Secondly, we are to declare with our mouth Jesus as Lord. There's a whole new aspect that I can't get into this morning about what the, what the word Lord is actually referring to, the great I am. It's a quote from, from Joel back in the Old Testament, confess Jesus as the I am, but as Lord, Lord of our lives. Ephesians 4.29 tells us, thirdly, that uh, what should be coming out of our mouths, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, only what is helpful. Exodus 13, 9 tells us that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. And Deuteronomy 6 says that we are to speak it when we stand up, when we sit down, when we lie down, when we walk by the way, constantly, 24-7 if possible. Psalm 92 tells us that we, we ought to be praising the Lord all day long. It's good to praise the Lord, he says, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness in, at night and every aspect in between. Our tongue is to teach God's truth. God speaking to Aaron and, and Moses in Exodus chapter 4 says, I myself will, put with, will be with your mouth. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting way of saying that? I'll be with your mouth and his mouth, Moses and Aaron, and I will instruct you in what you are to do. Seventhly, our mouth is to bless in 1 Peter 3. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called remember jesus said bless those who curse you is that easy With the power of the holy spirit we can do it psalm 77 says that our mouth is to speak of god i will meditate also of all your work the psalmist says and talk of your doings that's what should be on our lips 
is to speak wisdom and kindness. In Proverbs 31, she opens her mouth with wisdom and her tongue is the law of kindness. And tenthly, our mouth is to be used to bring peace. Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath, brings peace. So the Bible has a lot to say about what the mouth is supposed to say and what it isn't supposed to say. How it's supposed to be used and how it's not supposed to be used. And as new creatures, as new creations, we must be committed to the fact that this new person, that this new person should have a new mouth and a new mouth should have a new speech. Now, that was a quick introduction to the theology of the tongue. A biblical study on the tongue. Find a concordance someday and look up mouth, speech, tongue, and be amazing what you'll find in Scripture. But it's so important to understand how seriously God considers our tongue and our speech. Now we come to our text here, and Paul picks out four areas of the mouth, four kinds of speech that he wants to address. There's a speech of prayer, the speech of proclamation, the speech of performance, and the speech of perfection. Four distinct aspects related to the mouth of the, for the Christian lifestyle, for the sanctified life. Uh, we're going to start this morning with the first one, the speech of prayer. We'll cover the other three next Sunday. A new lifestyle with a new self will mean a new mouth filled with a new kind of conversation. Look at Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Okay, good. Got that. Let's move on. No, we can't do that. There is a lot that Paul is saying in those few words. One commentator wrote, Prayer is the most important speech that your mouth will ever utter. Prayer is the most important conversation that you will ever hold. The most important expression of the new life. And then he went on to explain it by saying, prayer is a divinely appointed weapon against the sinister attack of of the devil and his angels. Prayer is a vehicle, a confession of sin. Prayer is a means by which the grateful soul pours out his spontaneous praise before the throne of God. Praise is the voice of the weeping soul calling on the sympathetic high priest in the time of need. Prayer is the intercession of the concerned Christian who calls on divine resources on behalf of another's trouble. And prayer is a simple conversation of the beloved child with a caring father as they talk of love. So, Pastor, you've talked about prayer before. I've heard it for 20 years. What more is there to say about prayer? Well, you know, often when we hear or read a verse like this one that tells us to continue in prayer, we think, okay, I, I've heard that. You know, Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6 says, praying always. Romans 12 says, continue diligently in prayer. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. So, so we come, come to our own theological conclusions about what that means. How do you pray without ceasing? But Paul does something here that takes us to the next level, a deeper level. As changed people, as transformed people, people who the Holy Spirit has sanctified, Paul says, continually, excuse me, continue earnestly in prayer. 
Oh, Pastor, that, that sounds like all the rest of the verses. Yeah, it does. But let's do a little bit of Greek digging. I, I, I know you love this as much as I do. Some translations just say, continue in prayer. But that doesn't give the intensity that Paul uses here. The word translated continue, just the word continue in Greek, the Greek word for that is kartereo, uh, which simply means to continue or be steadfast in something, continue on doing it. But whenever you add a preposition to the front of a Greek verb, you intensify that verb. So Paul adds a preposition pros, meaning extra strong. Proskartereo, which becomes one word, proskartereo, giving the word the sense of continuing with strong perseverance, or actually, as the NIV puts it, earnestly. It's a strong commitment to something where you are steadfast and you endure. You don't bail out, you don't give up, you don't quit. We have that same concept in Acts chapter 1. Where in the upper room it says they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. That was not a light prayer meeting they were having. In the same thing in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly, the same word, in the apostles' doctrines and fellowship and in breaking of the bread and in prayers, proskatereo. This was not taken lightly, this was serious stuff. Now take a look at the word for prayer. Prosuke. Know something there? The preposition pro. To earnestly supplicate is what that word means. Not to be taken lightly. Stick with it. That's a general Greek word for prayer. Earnest supplication. One Greek word. It's not just a conversation, but we need to believe what we're praying. Stick with it. In Mark chapter 11, verse 22, Jesus said, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, same word, prosuke, earnest supplication, believe that you have received it. And it'll be yours. So Paul is saying here in verse 2 of our passage, be earnestly persistent in earnest supplication. Let me give you another illustration in Luke 18, verse 1, where it starts out by saying, Then Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray. What's the word? Prosukomai. Same root word. And not give up. So the whole purpose of the parable that Jesus was about to give to them is to do exactly what Paul is saying to us here in Colossians 4. It's so that you'll keep praying and not fall asleep and not quick and not give up. Here's the parable, verse 2. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God and I, I, and I, and I don't care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come back and attack me. 
You mean that's what we're, we've got to do to get something out of God? Seriously? To get His attention? Is that what God's like? We've got to bother Him so much that He's just going to get fed up with us and finally do what we ask. No, that's not the application at all. Listen, Jesus actually gives the application. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? See, the judge wasn't going to bring justice. But God will. Will He keep putting them off like the judge was doing? No. Jesus said, I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly. Jesus is actually saying that God is not like that judge at all. That judge was only thinking about himself. He was irritated with that widow. She was bothering him, disturbing him. But God loves us, and he wants to respond, and he wants to answer, and he does because he's a loving and faithful God. But God wants us to be serious about our prayers. He wants us to truly believe Believe enough that we will persist earnestly in our earnest supplication. Jesus says, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. In other words, God is saying, be persistent. I'm going to answer. How persistent are we in our prayers? Someone once said, prayer is a matter of proving to God the deepest concern of your heart. How concerned are we, really, for our neighbor, for our colleague, many of whom are going to hell? Just a couple quick more, quick points left here in verse 2, Stay, staying just in that one verse this morning. Paul says, continue earnestly in prayer. Okay, we've got that. Being vigilant in it. Being vigilant in it. You know what, as I was looking at it, I was thinking, you know, that, that, that's so good. What, what does that mean? Have you ever thought, what does that mean, being vigilant in prayer? The word means to be vigilant, to be awake, to be watchful. There are a number of things that came to my mind as I was going through this. And the first is the most obvious, we need to stay awake when we pray, right? How good and how earnest are we if we fall asleep at night just before going to bed? We'll pray and halfway through we, we fall asleep. I've done it. Jesus asked his disciples three times, stay awake and pray with him and for him. And they fell asleep all three times. Prayer is serious. Paul says, stay awake, pay attention. Secondly, we need to be focused in our prayer. That too is being vigilant. Think about what we're praying. God wants us to be specific. He doesn't want prayers like, God, bless the whole world. He's not going to do that. He can't do that because the majority of the world doesn't, uh, don't love Him. The majority of the world have actually rejected Him. Praying specifically shows that you've thought this through and you have faith that He will answer specifically. I think sometimes we like to pray in generalities because then, then our, our faith isn't going to be tested. 
Thirdly, we need to pray according to His will, pray in His name. Part of being vigilant is making sure that what we are praying would be according to His will. Praying Scripture is a wonderful way to be vigilant. We can't go wrong when we pray Scripture. Jesus said in John 14, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name. said it two times, same verse, and I will do it. We need to be vigilant in that. And then fourthly, we need to pray with expectation. Praying, expecting God to answer. That's another aspect of being vigilant. How often do we pray hoping for the best, but not really expecting God maybe to come through? Ah, must have been His will that He didn't answer. Or was it the way we were praying? Or our unbelief at the, at the core of our prayer? James 1.6 says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And John 5 verse 14 tells us, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do we expect it? And then there's actually a fifth one that I thought of. That's uh, being vigilant. It's being watchful to see how God is answering our prayers. He doesn't always answer the way we think He's going to or the way we think He ought to or the way we want Him to. We expect this, and He does this. But oftentimes we miss it because we're not looking for this. He usually has a much better way. And I think we often miss his answers because we're not watching, we're not being vigilant about how he is answering. And Paul says, at the end of that same verse, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. The attitude of thanksgiving is so important. Thanks, you, you thank somebody for doing something for you. So as we pray, we thank him already because we know He's going to answer, because of His promises in His Word. This is actually the fifth time Paul has mentioned thankfulness in this one little letter to the Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 12, it says, "...giving joyful thanks to the Father." Why? "...who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light." He's saying, "...be thankful for salvation." Chapter 2, verse 6, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in your faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. We are to be thankful for the spiritual growth that we have as the Holy Spirit works in us. Chapter 3, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. We are to be thankful for our fellowship with Christ and for the fellowship that we have with the body of Christ. And then verse 17 and verse 3, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Be thankful that you have the privilege to serve Him. And that whatever we do can be done in His name. And then here in our, in our verse it says, be thankful. Be thankful that when we pray, we have the guarantee that God is going to answer in accord with what's best for us. Be thankful. So Paul says, continue 
continue earnestly and persistently in never giving up prayer, being vigilant in it with expectation and with thanksgiving, being grateful that we have a wonderful God who can and wants to answer prayers beyond what we can imagine. Are we there? Is that how we pray? Is that how I pray? Is that how you pray? Is that how our church body prays? Way back in September 2018, I shared with you the difference between a church that prays and a church devoted to prayer. Paul says we should be a people, we should be a church devoted to prayer. What's the difference? The church that prays, prays for what it does. A church devoted to prayer works and ministers by prayer. A church that prays, prays at its convenience. A church devoted to pray, prays at the command of God. A church that prays, prays when there's a problem. A church devoted to pray, prayers, prays when there are advantageous opportunities. A church that prays, uh, feels guilty knowing that she should pray more. A church devoted to prayer is joyful, having desire to pray more. A church that prays announces a prayer meeting and a few from the church show up. A church devoted to prayer announces a prayer meeting. The whole church shows up. A church that prays asks God to bless their programs. A church devoted to prayer asks God to prepare them to do what He is blessing. A church that prays believes she is too busy to pray. A church devoted to prayer asks God to prepare them to do, excuse me, knows she is too busy not to pray. A church that prays is frustrated by the lack of finances, so limits her ministries, and a church devoted to prayer covers the financial deficit with prayer, and she receives finances miraculously. A church that prays inserts prayer someplace. A church devoted to prayer gives priority to prayer. And a church that prays uses God or tries to use God. A church devoted to prayer is used by God. Isn't that good? One of our Alliance pastors down in the Alliance Church down in Georgia put that together. A new sanctified self has a new mouth, and a new mouth of the new self has a new speech, and the new speech is the language of prayer. Are we expectant? In our prayers. In a moment, we're going to be singing a song called Expectation. You know it. We've sung it before. We usually sing it at the beginning of the, of the service, act, getting us in the mood, if you will, uh, expecting God to do something during the service. But I chose it for the end of the service. Listen to the chorus. Jesus always, as we enter this place, we come with expectation. We come with celebration. We come anticipating what you hold in store. Are we doing that in our regular lives? As a church body, we come anticipating what you hold in store. And we come with hearts wide open. We come with a holy hope in what you'll do. As we come through these doors, we come with expectation, Lord. This needs to be our heartthrob, the heartthrob of our church. What's God doing in our midst? Do we have that holy hope that the song writes about in what He'll do, no matter what it may be? No matter if it might be a little bit uncomfortable for us, are we open with expectation? Are we willing to go along with whatever He's got planned for us? 
I think our hearts need to be in that place. And the Lord said, ah, oh, good. Now I'm going to move forward with you. Father, this morning I pray that our hearts will be hearts of expectation, anticipation. Father, before we can have expectation and anticipation, I pray that you'd make us a people of prayer individually and as a church body that we would continually continue earnestly in earnest supplication, being diligent in it, and being thankful. So, Father, we are here this morning with open arms, open hearts, open minds, and asking you to do something amazing in our midst. And we are here in expectation and anticipation. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.